Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. I'm a little behind in my podcast, so I don't know if this is cliche by now or not, but that song was It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine by R.E.M. It's from their 1987 album Document, which is available on Apple Music. It is the end of the world, Richard. How are you doing? You know, it has been two months since you and I have actually recorded, a month since the last episode, but we recorded the first weekend in February our March episode and um, the world has changed drastically in the last month, let alone two months. Yeah. It's just one of these things where I, you know, I'm doing okay. You know, I am, I'm hunkering down. Carla and I are hunkering down. I, you know, just enjoying life as best as I can. It's just that unsettled feeling I think that everybody has. And I know a lot of people are dealing with anxiety and, and all sorts of, if you, Watch the news too much. It's enough to drive you crazy. Uh, I limit all of that, and I'm enjoying life as best as I can. There's just that little unsettlement uh, in the air. And all the various news that seems to be coming out every day that affects nerds like you and me, you know, stuff that in the big scheme of things don't really matter, but still it's kind of sad when we see conversations about movie theaters being closed or new comic books being postponed indefinitely or the latest issue of scary monsters possibly being delayed because the printer is closed, which I think they got that resolved. It sounds like at least for subscribers, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it can kind of get to you after a while. It's been a, as someone had said, I saw this little meme, I guess it went out uh, yesterday. Welcome to March 97th. And it's true. March was the longest month, I think, in, in, in the history of, of mankind. It seemed like an incredibly long month. So you and I are recording this on April 1st. And so I guess you got a couple of fools here recording remotely this time. First time ever. We're not in the same room. Yes. If you couldn't tell by the times I've already stepped over Richard while he's talking and, and I try to say something else. But uh, yeah, we're I'm hunkered down, like you said, in my remote bunker here in Enid, Oklahoma. We wanted to try to maintain normalcy as best we could. Uh, and it's not that we didn't get together necessarily because we're worried about infecting each other or or something like that. That's not specifically the reason we're not together recording, but certainly a contributing factor with travels and all the different things that are contributing to the current situation we're in, which I feel like I have not wrapped my head around. It's something I keep thinking I'm going to wake up uh, and it, it will have been a dream. It's just so unusual. And that's funny. As many movies as we've seen, apocalyptic movies into the world, and I know I'm exaggerating, it's not that, but it's very similar to a lot of movies we've seen. Uh, I still am not prepared for it. It is very similar, this, this early stage of it. I just chatted uh, yesterday with Mary Rotolo from the B Movie Cast. She's doing good. You know, she uh, we talked a little bit about 
kind of her circumstances for people who are familiar with the B movie cast, as I think many of you probably are. Some of you might not be if you're newcomers to the podcast community. The B movie cast launched in the very, very infancy of podcasts. B movie cast was one of the first podcasts out there, realistically. And uh, the late great Vince Rotolo launched that show. It, it, it brought me into podcasting. And uh, we lost Vince four years ago now. But something that Vince always did every year and a half, he and Mary worked at a, uh, a nuclear facility and they would go into this you know, kind of sequestered scenario where they had to work uh, six weeks, 12 hour days, six days a week. And it was a they were cleaning out the nuclear facility. And Vince would talk about this on his show and and talk about some of the crazy things that happened. Well, Mary was still doing that, and and her time was was coming due. I think last month, March now, was when she was supposed to start that. Which, in my mind, you know, why they would even go ahead and, and continue to do that in the current environment. But I guess you've got regulations you have to follow. She didn't really want to be in close quarters with the same people for twelve hours a day, six days a week, for six weeks. She has a you know autoimmune issues, so she just didn't feel like that was the smart thing to do, and so she had to quit her job. So she, uh, I believe, she retired officially. I think I think that was what Nick Brown said on Facebook. Yeah, she's doing good, but this this impacted you know her. It impacted her job, so um, she had to make the right call. They were essentially telling her that she needed to move forward with it, and she said she would not. But thankfully, I, I'm kind of the same way with you. It's like, you know, in some ways, life is is kind of normal. And I've even got kind of a bonus from it because I'm working from home again temporarily. But it's the seriousness is, is not escaping. So this particular month, you and I are in different locations. We're hoping that, you know, when we record our May episode that we'll be in the same location. I think that we'll be able to hopefully pull that off. You and I have been talking. You're basically in, in quarantine and I'm in quarantine. I think the only places you and I are going are the, to the grocery stores. So I think that we might be able to, to pull off a, uh, a podcast recording six feet apart <laughs> mm. um, uh, for May, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, meanwhile, you'll know, we'll have to turn the table uh Long ways instead of short ways. Yes, instead of short ways. But here we are. We're doing a first time recording through Zencaster, which is something you found that uh, is allowing us to, to record. Yeah, it's an opportunity for us to test some things. We'll see how this sounds. We probably could have done a regular episode, but we're kind of using this as an opportunity, like I said, to try out some new things. We've realized a couple of things when figuring this out. One is that our first group of episodes that used to be hosted by Downright Creepy are no longer hosted anywhere. So uh, this gave us an opportunity to kind of look at that, see about getting them cleaned up and, and reposted. So a portion of this show will be from an episode. So uh, we could kind of think of it, Richard, as a best of episode, sort of. Kind of a clip show, almost in a way. We, yeah. I'm looking. I'm looking at the list here. Our first episode thirteen in December of 2017 was the first one, I believe. Uh, no, 
I take that back. I'm sorry. Episode 16.5, April 2018. That was our first episode on SoundCloud. It was the Planet of the Apes special on your trip to California. And then our, our regular episode that month was the Rondo Hatton episode. So that's the oldest official episode on SoundCloud. You went back and remastered a handful of episodes, uh, episode 12, episode 10, 7, uh, 6, and 5. Some of those episodes are already on SoundCloud, but some of them are totally unavailable, including the one that we are going to be taking part of and incorporating into this month's episode. So Sherlock Holmes, not going to happen this month, but it will happen in May, whether we're in the same room or not. You have another month to watch The House of Fear from 1945, Hound of the Baskervilles from 59, and A Study in Terror from 65. We will definitely be doing Sherlock Holmes in May, and I know for a fact that that Carla is still committed to making a guest appearance on the episode next month. April is her birthday month. She chose Sherlock Holmes as uh, something that, and I think it's actually, it's been a lot of fun because we're watching all the Basil Rathbone movies now before we dive into the even bigger world of Sherlock Holmes. So that's been a lot of fun. So meanwhile, what are we doing this month, Jeff, for episode 42? Well, why don't you explain why we chose the episode we did? It is from episode nine which was a, uh, an episode devoted to Frankenstein, the true story. Why are we digging that out of its grave now? <laughs> uh, that was funny. So Frankenstein, the true story. If you are friends with Sam Irvin on Facebook and you don't know that Frankenstein, the true story is out on Blu-ray, you're apparently not paying attention to Facebook well enough because he is the master of marketing you know, Sam, as we talked about back almost, well, almost three years ago now, which seems kind of crazy, you met Sam at uh, Monster Bash that particular year. I did not. You met him that year, but you asked him to be on the show, and we had him on. Actually, we did kind of uh, two episodes. We had a, a bonus episode in July, episode eight, where Sam was a guest, and then episode nine is where we talked about Frankenstein, the true story. He's got a, uh, a lifelong passion for, for Frankenstein, the true story, dating back to when he first saw it on NBC in 1973. And he was uh, 17 at the time. And he um, had a, his own fanzine called Bizarre. He has this fantastic story of how, you know, he, he interviewed, you know, so many people back then, but in particular for this movie, he interviewed Jane Seymour and Margaret Layton, along with some others, for his for his fanzine. And then, uh, of course, Little Shop of Horrors, issue number thirty eight, which is an amazing magazine. It's I believe it's still available, isn't it? Yes, I believe that is still available. That's a fantastic magazine. If you don't have it in your collection, you need to. And really, it's more than a magazine. It is a book. It's an amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, the Little Shop of Horrors is so cool anyway, but that particular issue, devoted to the uh, the miniseries, he interviewed Jane Seymour again, along with 20 other cast and crew members. He, of course, the cover is from uh, the legendary Mark Maddox. He won Rondo Award for Best Artist of the Year. 
Uh, Sam won the Rondo Award for Best Article of the Year. Absolutely, you know, amazing stuff. And so we gave Sam two episodes back uh, three years ago, and it is now been released on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. So as we're recording this, it is not in my grubby little hands yet, but I got the notification that uh, I will have it on April 3rd. So by the time I think everyone hears this, uh, it'll be in my hands. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing all the extras, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Sam was in charge, basically, or, or was heavily involved in the uh, production of the Blu-ray. And that really, you have to think, is because of his work with the magazine three years ago to show that I don't think anybody else is qualified on the same level to talk about Frankenstein, the true story. So I'm looking forward to getting the Blu-ray. As I've been told, it's the best that's ever looked. Probably looks better than it did on television. Since we had those, those episodes out there, we're going to take our interview segment, or not the interview segment, the uh, review segment, from that episode and kind of placing it into this one. So kind of a flashback, if you will. Uh, I believe the plan is within a couple weeks after that in April, the Sam Irvin interview will be the remastered edition of that will be uploaded <laughs> into the uh, into SoundCloud. So you'll be able to get it in your in your SoundCloud or if you're on iTunes or whatever, it'll be in the feed again where you can go back and listen to it. Some of it, you know, it's been a while since I've listened to that interview. Obviously, keep in mind, it's a three-year-old interview, but it was a lot of fun. And I have since met Sam uh, in person. I finally met him last year at Monster Bash. So and he is an amazing guy. And yes, he is shilling the, the heck out of this on Facebook as only he can do. If we didn't have Sherlock Holmes, then Frankenstein is a fantastic way to to get an episode out and, and uh, get those episodes out. So if you didn't hear them three years ago, it's uh, it's like a brand new episode for you anyway. Yeah. Hey, why don't we call the meeting to order? We haven't done that yet. <laughs> so welcome. We haven't, yes. Episode 42. Let's take care of some old business, Richard. When I said we were taking this episode to do uh, several things, we have got a whole bunch of new members that we want to introduce and welcome to the club. Uh, so I'm going to just start right now. And if you recall, I don't know if it was last episode or two, we were very close to the 100 member mark and we offered a prize to the person that would be number 100 through a little... Oh, administrative, let's say, glitch, or actually not a glitch. It was a choice. I'll let you explain that. Uh, we actually have two winners. We had somebody that was 100 for a moment, went back to, down to 99, and then someone else became 100. So we, we are issuing them both the T-shirt, the Classic Horse Club T-shirt from T Public. Do you want to explain that administrative thing that happened? Yeah, what happened was for the the betterment of the Facebook page. When we get, you know, new members, as with anybody, Jeff and I are the admins, and we always kind of take a quick look and make sure, first off, that they're a real person. You know, generally speaking, it's fairly easy to see that we're welcoming a new member who is part of the community. Usually they're already friends of friends, or they're on other pages that we're familiar with. We did get a friend request, not a friend request, but a, a request to join the page from a, another podcast that hadn't launched yet. And 
I, I will totally own up to it. I didn't vet it properly. I went ahead and accepted them and regretted it almost immediately. We have absolutely nothing against members promoting their own work. That We encourage it. We want that kind of conversation on the page. But when all you're doing is posting the fact that you've got a podcast launching in three days, I have a podcast launching in two days, I have a podcast launching in two hours, and then you're constantly repeating that message and you're not involved in any other conversation, you're not liking any other posts, there was a problem with that. And then when I posted something and their comment on my post was about their podcast and it had nothing to do with my post, I said that was enough. I deleted that, gave them a warning, and they continued, kind of continued to do that and continued to post on the page. And I said, enough is enough. We went ahead and and, uh, politely removed them from the page. So while that was happening, we had a 100th member who became number 99. And I felt it was only right that both people technically are 100. uh, And so that's why we have two winners. So yeah, what we did was for the for the best of the page, and we are certainly making sure that as we welcome new members that uh, we avoid that error from happening again in the future. And I'm proud to say that the long list of new members that we have, I'm incredibly impressed. We've had an insurgence of, uh, of new listeners, and, and many of them coming on board, just as we did our Lionel Atwell episode, which I've heard from a lot of people saying that it's one of the best, if not the best episodes that we did. And I felt that when we recorded that now almost two months ago, I just, I felt really good about that episode. It was a lot of fun. It was something different where we talked about somebody that generally doesn't get, you know, highlighted in a whole entire podcast. And so I'm thankful for all the new members. I know you're going to go off the list of welcoming everyone. I think they came on board in a fantastic time which is why it was even more important for us to make sure we put out an April episode because, you know, we don't, we have a lot of momentum. We got people who are coming on board now more than ever. People are home. They need to be entertained. They need to tune out from all the negativity as much as they can. And if you and I can produce a podcast that helps them escape reality for two or three hours, maybe gives them some suggestions on something to watch or something to read then I think that we're doing the service and it was really important you know, for us to, to put out an April episode and to kind of keep these podcasts coming each month. The world around us may be crazy, but we're going to keep doing this to entertain you. So yeah, I think you just uh, said that we are an essential service somewhere in there. I, th- I think so. Absolutely. We're an essential service. So we get to stay open and do another one. So yes. uh, yeah, I just want to say, and yeah, after you had such a nice sentiment, I'm going to say something really tacky, but we've always said, all you got to do is ask, you know, we'll, we'll click a button and you can join the group, but come on, at least wine and dine us before you try to take us to bed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, exactly. It's kind of like, as I said, we want you, we encourage you to, to promote your own stuff, but there needs to be a semblance of, of uh, common sense. And there wasn't any common sense in that. And so, uh, you know, that's why we did what we did. The good thing is two people are getting t-shirts. So it was to their fortune, I guess, that we did, we had that, uh, that happen. So when we announced that we were close to 100, we actually had 96 members. Our 97th member was James McCarthy. 
Then we had Paul Murphy. Then we had 100 for a little bit, Matt Helm. Whether that's his real name or not is, uh, you know, some uh, point of debate, but uh, (laughs) nevertheless. Uh, Then Pamela Moore stepped in and became the new number one. So congratulations to Matt and Pamela. After that, they started coming fast and furious. We have Rick Queen, David Hines, Danny McCarley, Crystal Casper, Kevin Mater, Christopher Benedict, Todd Brown, Armin Heineke, and Philip Pine. Now, a couple of those I want to call out. Todd Brown is from The Haunted Cinema. You've probably heard him oh, on Monster Kid Radio, or you probably follow his Facebook page or go to his website. A great site, The Haunted Cinema. So I want to call that out. Thanks for joining our little group, Todd. Check out if you're friends with him on Facebook or have not reached out to him because he's just starting to post more pictures of his uh, of his haunted cinema in his home. Absolutely stunning work that he's been doing some remodeling and is is a monster movie kid's dream there. If you if you uh, are friends with him, he's posting some very, very cool pics. I saw that today. Yeah, very. There's not an emoji for jealous. You know, there's only like or love or hate, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and then Armin Heineke did comment when he joined that uh, he found the podcast only relatively recently and he immensely enjoyed the Lionel Atwell episode. He's looking forward to check out our older episodes and will hopefully manage to send in some audio feedback. So I want to capitalize on that little comment. Yes, we do accept audio feedback. We have a phone number you can call to leave a voicemail. That's 1-616-649-2582. I don't know why I said one. I never say that. Uh, But that equates to 616-649-CLUB. Very good. Just a little. You couldn't see me pointing my fingers at you like they were pistols, but um, I did that anyway. So you can do that, or you can email us a voice recording, or if you want, you can just write us an email and we'll read it. And that is what we're actually doing with the next feedback. And this is something that we've sadly been sitting on a long time. Nicholas Hatcher was very, very kind to give us a report from the October Monster Bash. We mentioned Monster Bash a lot. We usually go in the summer when we've gone, and uh, we just wondered what the October one was like. Nick took time out of his schedule. I'm sure it takes more time uh, to write an email than it would be to, to call in and record, so we really, really appreciate that, and we hired an actor with a voice with such gravitas to interpret this voicemail or excuse me, email, and we will play that now. Hey guys, it's Nicholas checking in once again. Sorry for the long delay in responding to you guys. It's been absolutely crazy the past few months with the holidays and family life and the make-believe adult world we commonly refer to as work. I wish I could call in, but sending an email is just easier right now. Way behind on the podcast, but looking forward to catching up and seeing what you guys have been covering. I promised a long overdue correspondence on the October Monster Bash, so I thought I would write in and talk about the Great Bash. This bash was focused on the incredible Fay Ray, as was previously mentioned some time ago. When I finally arrived after a weary day of endless cross-country flights, I got to the hotel, which was not the normal bash hotel. I will admit it took some getting used to. 
but I was happy when I signed in and saw the table with all sorts of great t-shirts and a TV playing classic horror movie trailers. I knew I was home. I went and looked around the lobby area, which was set up by Creepy Classics, but resisting the urge to spend money already, I found some food and turned in for the night, knowing that the fun would begin very early the next day. Friday morning began, and so did the Monster Kid goodness. After a quick breakfast, I headed into the screening room for the short television episode that begins every Monster Bash, Monsters We Have Known and Loved, narrated by the great Joseph Cotton. I love seeing some of the lesser-known Columbia shockers in films like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the Cyclops getting some attention, but the lack of universal films getting their due is always strange to me. Next, Bill Diamond presented his monstrous puppets, and we got to see one of the original Gremlins puppets from the second film. It was in poor shape, but he was in the process of restoring it, and some of the moving parts still worked. It was a sight to behold for sure. After this, the day of Fay Ray began, and let me tell you, I was in heaven. All of her genre films were shown that day, including one I've never seen, Below the Sea, which also featured Ralph Bellamy and is now one of my favorite of her films. I want to track it down on DVD. She is excellent in this film, and it is fun to see Bellamy as a slimy, ne'er-do-well, as opposed to the milquetoast character in The Wolfman. I did skip Dr. X because I had just seen it recently, but also because at this time the dealer room finally opened for the first time. Let me tell you, the dealer room at Monster Bash may be the most dangerous place in the world for people like us. I can't even begin to tell you all of the treasures that I saw in that magical room. However, there was one table I was looking for specifically, and I made a beeline for it as soon as I saw it. Ding, ding, ding. Did I just hear the bell at a wrestling match? That's right. Juan from the Creepy Swamps and Fifth Dimension Films. He always has one of the insane Santo and other luchador monster movies that I crave and need more of. Plus, he has so many other strange and weirdo films that I just can't seem to find anywhere else. After some good conversation and entirely way too much money spent, I headed back into the screening room in time for the big one, King Kong, in the Q&A session with Victoria Riskin, Faye Ray's daughter. I forgot to mention that earlier in the day I had gone to her table after a meeting with Juan and had her sign my book, and she was just as delightful in person as I felt she would be while reading her book. Her Q&A was fascinating, and so was the book. If you have a chance to pick up Faye Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir, it's excellent. The day ended with the wonderful Monster Bash game show. A panel had to guess monsters based on descriptions from audience members, sort of like what's my line. Monsters from Roman to Angulus to the Xanti Misfits were posted in the panel. With the audience and laughter the entire time, it was so much fun to be around. So many people who all get it and understood the references that were being made. Here is one small complaint about Monster Bash. I was looking forward to the Mexican Monster Movie Night. This time it was a film called The New Invisible Man. The program stated that the film would be dubbed in English. I have a hard time watching a movie in another language without subtitles or English dubbing. In other words, I don't speak Spanish. Unfortunately, once the film started, there was no English dubbing and no English subtitles. 
just straight Spanish. I really tried to watch it, but I ended up giving up and taking a break. If you say you're going to have a dubbed movie or have English subtitles, please stick it to that, uh, you know, for us gringos who don't know how to speak Spanish. However, there was no sleep for this Monster Kid Warrior. I went back in time for the late show Voodoo Man with live horror hosting by Mr. Lobo. I had never seen Mr. Lobo for this showing, but I left a fan. I laughed so hard, I almost busted a gut. He staged his uh, semi-game show with the audience members before the film started. And Voodoo Man? I've always had sort of an unhealthy love for this film. I wanted to stay for the late, late movie, Shh, the octopus, because I'd never seen it, but I had to get some sleep. The next morning, I slept in a little bit, got up in time for the talk with Donnie Dunnigan from Son of Frankenstein and Tower of London. This man is a machine. He got up there and started punching his fist in the air like a man of 30. He is a dynamo. I asked him a question about working with Lionel Atwill, but he quickly changed the subject, which I think says more about Atwill than we need to know. After this, uh, a strange short film I had never seen with Orson Welles called Return to Gleniscall. I'm probably butchering that, Nicholas, sorry. A must-see for Orson Welles fans like myself. I spent more money in the dealer room through the day and returned to the screening room to see The Ghoul with Boris Karloff and Murder in the Blue Room. I also got to meet some other monster kids and chat about how much we love these crazy films. The real highlight of Saturday night, however, was the Q&A session with Marta Kristen and Mark Goddard from the original Lost in Space TV show. Mark Goddard himself is a real character with him relaying many stories and thoughts that probably shouldn't be repeated here. Let's just say that he is a man who is very colorful. Later that night, the festival of the New Wine song was sung by Bob Pellegrino, and the feeling of singing that song with the whole audience was magical. I loved every single second of it. I even caught a prize. We saw the Monster Bash Lifetime Achievement Awards passed out to some of the Bash staff members and Mr. Lobo himself. It was so much fun seeing these guys get recognized. Then a documentary about character actor Milton Parsons. I know what you're thinking. Who? Go look him up. You'll recognize him immediately. Then a film featuring Parsons, The Hidden Hand from 1942. I will admit I fell asleep. Not because I was bored, but because by this time it was 1.30 a.m. The next day I had to leave early to catch my flight, but I did manage to make it to the Sunday morning R-Gang shorts hosted by Mr. Lobo. I made a quick round of the lobby and dealer room once more. I also hit up Juan's table once more to say goodbye and, yes, grab a couple more items. Then I said my farewells and left one of the best weekends of my life. I can honestly say that even though October Monster Bash is smaller than the June Bash, I had as much fun and enjoyed the heck out of myself. The next couple of weeks were both joyous and melancholy as I looked back at the fun that was had and that had to end. But hey, maybe I'll be able to make it to Bash again sometime soon. We shall see. Anyway, sorry for the long-winded email. Just wanted to convey that good old bash feeling as always. Love the podcast. Love what you guys do and keep on going. Sincerely, Nicholas. Well, thank you again, Nicholas, for taking the time to do that. And to our actor, if you did not figure that out, that was our own Richard Chamberlain who did a little pro bono work and, and recorded that on his own time. So we, we certainly appreciate that, Mr. Chamberlain. 
Absolutely. I, I'm still waiting for that check in the mail. So it, it, uh, it must be lost with my, with my stimulus check as well. <laughs> well, I, I know you don't work in a law firm, but perhaps you don't know the meaning of pro bono. Oh, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I do. I do know. So that would explain, that would explain everything. No, I, I enjoyed reading that. And, uh, thank you, Nick, for, for saying that in Nicholas, uh, uh, and absolutely, uh, you know, I know that, uh, Bill Mize, I think we're going to be getting something from him for next month's episode. He reached out to me and said he had some thoughts on Sherlock Holmes. Ah, great. I'll be giving him a reminder as it gets close to whenever we record. But uh, absolutely, if you want to write to us or send us audio, please do. We want to include your feedback on the show. And I do just want to mention, I at this late date could not find the actual messages to read, but we did have a nice conversation going with Steve Sullivan um, after our Night Stalker episode. And he did remind us, I, I feel like I was a little harsh on uh, the Night Stalker, and, and we did mention it, but we maybe kind of glossed over the fact that for the time that it came out, the Night Stalker really was an innovative, unique take on vampires. Sure, now it is familiar, but at the time, it may not have been. So I, I definitely intended to acknowledge that and, and did not probably make it clear and maybe sounded like I was poo-pooing it a little, but uh, he's absolutely right in that, you know, it is, I, I didn't say I didn't like it. Night Stalker is a, a fantastic movie. Carla and I started watching the Night Stalker series. We got sidetracked on the $6 million man. I'm not sure how that happened, but <laughs> Night Stalker is sitting right by the TV. So we're going to go, we're going to dive back into that probably sooner than later. So because $6 million man is a slightly longer series. I love anything from that time period. And so I know that uh, we both really love Night Star. And I'm about to bang my way through it. I will talk about that at the end of the episode. Sounds good. So shall we uh, move forward then or move backward, I guess, in time, however you want to look at it. Take a little break, come back and hear what we thought about Frankenstein, the true story. Sounds good. It was a... 19-year-old girl of good family who first breathed life into Frankenstein's creature. She will shock you with her horrific fancies. Go on, touch it. It's warm. Well, that's hardly surprising. It's been alive for more than a month. It knows you. Get it off! I must speak to you alone. Henry, listen, look, I can... Don't leave me alone with it. There's nothing to be afraid of, Elizabeth. She will transport you into a world of Regency glamour. To a world of danger and excitement. Accident? How many? Seven. Seven of them there were. Male or female? Oh, such fine young lads. Were the bodies much damaged? Who knows? Well, where are they? But they're using the stables as a temporary morgue. Those eyes will open. Those limbs will move. That brain will be alive. Scenes of rare beauty, such as when Prima, the female creature, is brought to life. 
More menace. No, never! My experiment, as you call it, I shall regret that for as long as I live. As a result of last night, sir, three people are dead and ten more seriously injured. We are still searching for the maniac who is responsible. You think you've got us all in your power. You have incriminated us. But I warn you, Polidori, I no longer care what happens to me. I am going to stop you. Victor! This is our chance. It's in there. With him. What? No, wait! More adventure. Your worst enemy, leave him to his fate! Shapen creature, burn traitor, burn Henry Clowbrow. You want to get rid of him just as much as I do, you hypocrite? Out of here. Welcome back. We are here, as we said earlier, to talk about Frankenstein: The True Story actually a TV movie that aired in two parts in at the end of November in 1973. Richard, tell us a little bit about what was happening in 1973. Well, if you're looking at movies in the cinema, uh, there were certainly some classics that came out that year. Uh, a little film called The Exorcist came out in 73. And depending on who you talk to, it's one of two films that changed the direction of horror. Some will pinpoint George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 68 as a definitive cutoff point for classic horror. Others will say it's The Exorcist in 73 because of, of the overall theme, the, uh, the graphic nature of the movie, the fact that it was literally making people sick in the theaters. From that point forward, we had, we had been getting a bit more of the blood and gore, but The Exorcist was, I think, a, a definitely a turning point uh, towards uh, the more graphic horror, and the old-school horror was, was becoming a bit of the thing of the past, and, and that's unfortunate, but you know, it also signified uh, a, a period of time where you could get more intense with the films, and, and a lot of classics would come out in forthcoming years. Another film, Westworld. Uh, was released in 73. Huge hit. Recent uh, blockbuster ABC or ABC HBO uh, series. Dirk Benedict. Let's mention him again because uh, 73 was the year that 
came out. And there are seven S's in that, by the way. That and is the official spelling. And on my notes, I officially typed six. So I have uh, a, a faux pas on my part. We're going to have to correct that next episode. Exactly. Um, other horror films that came out that year um, or sci-fi films, Soylent Green with Charlton Heston, uh, The Wicker Man with Christopher Lee, uh, Fantastic Planet, Legend of Hell House, Battle for the Planet of the Apes came out in 73. Other films, we had American Graffiti, Paper Moon, The Sting, Serpico, High Plains Drifter, Enter the Dragon, and uh, Live and Let Die, which had a young Jane Seymour in it, who is also one of the stars of our movie. In the world events... May I interject for a minute? Yes. So uh, this is interesting, some of the things you said to me about sort of the era's Night of the Living Dead and the Exorcist and all that. So in the 60s, I think it was a lot of psychological horror. I mean, Psycho had come out in 60, and and sort of the tone changed then. Night of the Living Dead definitely was uh, another uh, movement from that. And then, of course, The Exorcist. You mentioned that the classic sort of gothic thing was going away and it was they were getting more gory more colorful so frankenstein the true story is kind of in the middle of that i mean it is a gothic presentation but it's really in a new way it's it's not particularly gory but it's certainly told in a a fresh more modern way it just seems to me in the context of what's coming out it's sort of in in a middle ground maybe a part of a transition along with the exorcist and I do, like, by the way, like to draw a line between Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist because I think between those was sort of its own little era. When The Exorcist came out, that really kicked off a totally new thing with so many satanic movies and occult movies and things like that. So rather than choose one to you know draw a transition, I, I like to think there's really two there. And then if you think about that, Rosemary's Baby really was sort of a combination of both of those, it was a more uh, cer- cerebral, psychological type movie. Also, then bringing in the the satanic aspect. So, really, you could compromise and say that was the transition if you have to choose one. And that's a good point. So, I had to throw that in there. I've actually been doing a little research for my blog on uh, trying to to create some eras or ages of horror as they're known. So that was fresh on my mind. Thank you for letting me share. I think The Exorcist probably had opened the, the, the floodgates for a more graphic storytelling than, than Night of the Living Dead did. Um, and maybe it was because it was in color, maybe because it was just a, a few years later. But if you look at the movies that came, of course, post-Exorcist, movies like Last House on the Left and the Texas Chainsaw Massacres and, and The Hills Have Eyes. Those are some pretty intense films. The Exorcist, although not necessarily bloody, was very, very graphic and very intense. And I think you're right. There's that era between Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist that's kind of a unique era. Plus, I don't sh- I'm not sure Night of the Living Dead really got its most success then when it came out it in 68. I think it was the midnight movies later, even into the 70s, and even maybe after that, that we really realized how significant that was. Exorcist was just box office bonanza from the start. News events of the day. An average income uh, per year was $12,900. Gas was 40 cents a gallon. You could buy a new house... For thirty-two thousand five hundred dollars, 
Uh, you could buy a new Ford Galaxy 500 for just under 4000 OPEC restricted the flow of oil, causing the price of oil to increase 200%. Uh, Roe v. Wade happened. Uh, U.S. troops withdrawn from Vietnam. Watergate begins. Armed members of the American Indian Movement occupied the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, from February until May. Skylab was launched. And uh, I thought this was interesting. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned, and then he was replaced by Gerald Ford, who then became uh, President of the United States, Uh, what, less than a year later, Gerald Ford, of course, is the only man to serve as president who was not elected to either the presidency or vice presidency. Hmm. I remember hearing that once upon a time. I hadn't heard that for a while. So speaking of horrors, 1973 was a particular horrific time for music. It's the post-late 60s, early 70s, Woodstock era pre-disco era, which is its own measure of horror. You had an interesting time musically in 73. You had the number one song that year was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Don. I guarantee you that's the only time you're going to hear mention of Tony (laughs) Orlando and Don on a horror podcast. Other songs, Let's Get It On, Crocodile Rock, You're So Vain, Bad Bad Leroy Brown, Rocky Mountain High, Live and Let Die, Paul McCartney and Wings, of course, from the movie of the same year. Uh, But on a higher note, musically, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd was released in 73, so not all was lost uh, in the world of music. Richard, if disco is horror, remember, I love horror. (laughs) And I have to admit, I I like a good disco song myself, so, uh, but... That was that was the start of an interesting uh, time musically, but 73 was just as interesting. Uh, on television, some of the more popular TV shows, Sanford and Son, Maud, MASH, All in the Family, Marcus Welby, The Waltons, Gunsmoke was still going strong in 73, but it was about two years away from that infamous 1975 rural TV Implosion, I guess, is where CBS just did this big push and they canceled a bunch of their shows in the, well, early 70s, I guess they did this. Gunsmoke survived a few more years, but that's when they canceled uh, Mayberry RFD, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies. Gunsmoke was initially part of that. It survived, though. It managed to survive, I think, another year or two before it finally uh, rode off in the sunset in 75, never getting a final episode, and the cast found out after 20 years on the show they found out the show was canceled by reading it in variety not on twitter not on twitter no twitter in 70 in 70 uh 75 i guess when gunsmoke ended so when did the waltons start because that was sort of would fit in that group but was it stylistically or something a different generation i guess a little different i want to say 72 was when the movie the homecoming came out so the Waltons was probably in its first year as, as, a, as a TV series. TV movies had been popular now for several years. Um, and, in, and in 73, we had a few big ones in the genre. Um, Satan's School for Girls is one that's still talked about. One that I wasn't aware of, but you were. We talked about this before recording. Scream Pretty Peggy, which uh, featured Betty Davis. 
The Six Million Dollar Man, the original TV movie, was aired in, I believe, September of 73. Lee Majors as Colonel Steve Austin. Uh, it was followed by two more movies, Wine, Women, and War, which came out in October, which had guest star David McCallum, who was one of the stars of our movie. And then um, The Solid Gold Kidnapping, which was uh, aired in, in November then the uh, Six Miller Man series uh, officially launched in January of 74. And then another movie, The Night Strangler, uh, with uh, Kolchak, uh, Darren McGavin, who was in the Six Miller Man movie as the original version of Oscar Goldman. He was called Oliver Spencer and was much more of, uh, of a jerk. He wanted to basically put Steve Austin to sleep every time he was done with a mission. Uh, the Night Strangler was the sequel to The Night Stalker, a third movie was planned, but then the decision was made to do a full-blown TV series, which launched in January of 74. TV movies were very popular in the day. We were on the, I think, the early, early phase of doing full-blown TV miniseries, which really didn't hit the stride until the late 70s and early 80s. But Frankenstein, the True Story, essentially was a miniseries. It was two nights, uh, two hours each night. It became problematic years later when trying to syndicate it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but let's dive into Frankenstein, the True Story, 1973. Yeah, and just one other quick coincidence, I guess. Well, not coincidence, but uh, the gentleman who did the music for Six Million Dollar Man and Kolchak the Night Stalker, a man named Gil Mel, he also did the music for Frankenstein, the True Story, which... I've heard people say should be released as a soundtrack. It's a, it really is a great score. It's a very good, very good score. And as with any movie, uh, it can be enhanced or it can be a detraction if you don't have a good soundtrack. But a good soundtrack will enhance a film, and, and certainly is something. In fact, I just thought of that this morning. I was rewatching a few clips, and I, I just picked up on the music again and thought, "Wow, this is really good music." And again, for a 1973 TV movie, most TV movies of the day filled in a 90-minute time slot. Uh, they were 75 minutes long without commercials because there were fewer commercials back then. Even the Six Million Man movies were only 75 minutes long, the first three. Uh, this being broadcast over the course of two nights and totaling three hours in length made it certainly an exception to the rule. This was more than just a TV movie. This was a full-blown TV miniseries, which, again, we really wouldn't get a lot of until you get to the to the latter 1970s when you started getting into the things like Roots and on into the 80s with the, the Thornbirds and Warm Remembrance and Shogun. Uh, Frankenstein, the True Story, was in the early, early days of that. So overall, before we like get into plot or anything, how, how did you like this one? I loved it. it. This was a first time viewing for me. Well, not first time, but first time in, in probably 30 years since I had seen it. I watched this quite a bit when I was younger because it popped up on television with great frequency, for me anyway, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, living in Wichita, we had cable. And we got Channel 41 out of Kansas City, which back then was an independent UHF station. And they had movies. Monday, actually, I think it was seven nights a week, they did movies at 8 o'clock. And Frankenstein, the True Story, was aired numerous times uh, over the course of two nights. 
And uh, that's where I first watched it was, you know, probably circa 1978, 79. And remember watching it quite a few times over the years. And then I hadn't seen it again. I was aware of it, but I hadn't hadn't seen it again because it wasn't being broadcast on television. Uh, because uh, as you get to the late 70s and there started to be a lot of uh, made-for-syndication television series, Star Trek The Next Generation being at the forefront of that, 87, UHF stations began kind of cutting back on their movies, their old classic movies, and began filling them in with these original made-for-syndication television series. And then, of course, when the Fox Network came along, a plethora of UHF stations converted to being Fox TV, which, again, limited to when the movies could be played. Movies would be played maybe late night, maybe Saturdays and Sunday afternoons, but even then, UHF stations began playing movies less and less. And so the opportunity to play something the length of Frankenstein, the true story, became greatly limited, and it became essentially forgotten. Even in its VHS release, it was the condensed version, uh, which just doesn't work well. Anytime you do a condensed version of of a miniseries, you you miss plot points, you miss storylines. It ends up being very choppy. I watched a condensed version of Salem's Lot that way. Mm, Right. And it's horrible because it's just... You're missing key scenes. The best way to see it is it was originally broadcast, which is, again, you know, in its full three-hour length as a two-part miniseries. And I know I saw it when it first came out. I, I know I did. I, and I had the paperback. I think we're going to talk about that later. There are some differences in the novelization of, of the movie that was released in paperback. It didn't make a, a lasting impression, I guess. I mean, I always knew it was there, but I never really remembered it fondly or anything i was very eager to rewatch it i don't think i liked it as much as you it sounds like it's a very different take on the frankenstein story and it's really i think the the name the true story really is one of the further uh, descriptions you could give it from what mary shelley's original tale was it's frankenstein's presented in a way that's different than he has been before it's just, I don't know, it's unique. Why? That's why I like it. I think I yeah. like it for its uniqueness because we've seen the, the Frankenstein tale so many times. And what is interesting and comforting about that is that it originally wasn't called Frankenstein, the true story. I think that was a last minute decision uh, Sam wrote in the article to, to give it that name. I think it was filmed under Victor Frankenstein. Do you remember? It was, sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. And, and then only at the last minute and... I think if I'm remembering that even uh, the writers, Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, they, I don't believe, were happy with a lot of things that ended up changing the name was one of the things they weren't necessarily happy about. I think that um, when you look at this movie, I think, yeah, it's a very different version of Frankenstein. For me, nostalgia kicks in, and that enhances watching this again after so many decades and the familiarity of the cast. There's a lot of familiar faces that, that we'll run down here in a moment. Yeah, but. let's go ahead and do that because okay. that is, I think, one of the, the biggest things about this. And that's something Sam writes about is the cast. It was really, for that time, a top-notch cast. And he, he tells stories he did on our podcast and in the magazine as well about other huge names that wanted to be attached to this project. But the ones they ended up with are just fantastic 
Well, you want to run them down, Richard? Yeah, we've got James Mason as Dr. John Polidori, who is not in the novel. He's essentially based on the Dr. Praetorius character from Bride of Frankenstein. A little bit of a twist on it, but it's it, basically it's James Mason being James Mason. Um, he just has a way about him that I think if you watch most of his movies, he's kind of playing the same character. He just has that way of talking. And I can't even attempt to do a James Mason impersonation, or I would. You can do a good Nigel Thornberry imitation, I, I, though. I could. I could do Nigel Thornberry. Got Salem's Lot, uh, where he played Mr. Straker, came came out what about six years later. Is a movie that I love watching time and time again, and I love him in that. Uh, he was Watson in Murder by Decree. He was in Boys from Brazil, Journey to the Center of the Earth, North by Northwest, Twenty Thousand Leagues. A lot of genre films or pseudo-genre films, so well-known. And he gets top billing, I believe, but he's not really the main character. And I think he gets top billing because he was James Mason. Right. You have uh, Leonard Whitling as Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who didn't really have a lot of other credits to, you know, film credits. Um, He was still riding on the wave of success by appearing or starring as Romeo in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet, which was very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. So um, he didn't do a lot of work, too much work, I don't think, after this. Uh, I saw a quote where he was basically talking about how he was thrust upon being a, a star by appearing in Romeo and Juliet and kind of compared himself to Orson Welles, who had such a you know dynamic start to his career and then spent decades just kind of easing back into the spotlight, which is really what Leonard Whitling did. And I'm sorry to correct you. I don't think there's an L in that. I think it's just Whiting. Is it Whiting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and I think possibly is he the youngest person to have played Frankenstein? He's 23, was 23 at the time. And I think even, I think the way he was portrayed in the movie, he's certainly one of the younger characters. Man, I don't know though. Every um, all of them have gone to to school and they're coming yeah, out of college, to, so I'm maybe not. To think Sting was fairly young when he did The Bride in the eighties, but maybe he was. He still may have been a little bit older than, than Leonard was. I think he might be right. I think he might be right. We have David McCallum who played Doctor uh, pronounced Henry Henry. I believe so. Uh, Clervel. Um, well-known actor, again, character actor in some ways, popular modern audiences will know him from NCIS. He was, of course, uh, Ilya Kiryakin in The Man from Uncle. He was in Sapphire and Steel, The Invisible Man, episodes of Night Gallery, The Outer Limits, classic episode of The Outer Limits that was just on television the other day, The Sixth Finger, uh, well-known classic episode. David McCallum, you mentioned Invisible Man. That was a TV series, right? TV series, okay. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was I liked that. It was a good series. Now, I've actually never seen Sapphire and Steel. I know it's a bit of a, a genre film a series from, from Britain. And I want to say, and I could be wrong that they're time travelers, but I could be hmm. totally wrong. I've never heard of that. Um, I've never seen it, but I, it's, it's been on my radar for years, and I've just never had the opportunity to catch an episode. Uh, Jane Seymour played the character of Agatha, basically the creation of uh, the bride. The bride, essentially, yeah. yeah, she's the bride. 
Live and Let Die came out the same year, so she was at the early start of her career. Of course, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman is what she's more well-known for in recent years. She was in the first, I guess, the, the pilot movie for Battlestar Galactica and then, and then the two-part episode that followed. So she was in the early days of that classic series. And I have to say, I think of the cast, she delivers the best performance. I've never really liked her. Well, I don't know. For me, her peak was somewhere in time. I just loved Oh, I forgot that. that. Yeah, yeah. But she's fantastic in this. She, we may talk about it when we get there, but when she is the prima, the the second creation, she has some mannerisms that, on one hand, they sort of actually reminded me of Elsa Lanchester, sort of some little jerky mannerisms of her face, but she's just delightfully evil and beautiful and really her performance stood out to me and that that was a surprise rewatching it that yeah her performance was was so good to me yeah there's there's definitely uh some horrific scenes in her character nicola pageant played elizabeth lots of television work over in the uk it seems like um so beyond that not really anything other genre related unless i'm missing something she was in a hammer film not genre necessarily unless there were vampires and werewolves in Viking Queen, but she was in Viking Queen, oh, which Viking. was a hammer. I guess that is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never seen Viking Queen. Have I you? have not either. Michael Wilding played uh, Sir Richard Fanshawe. A lot of, his name sounded familiar, and I start looking at his, his list of credits, a lot of TV work, and I think that's probably where I've seen various TV character actor appearances. Uh, a couple of Hitchcock films, uh, under Capricorn and Stage Fright, two of his lesser-known efforts. Uh, and this was his last film, actually. He died, I believe, several years later. That name is so familiar to me, and I don't know why. I looked at his credits, and it's not because of any of those movies. Maybe it's familiar to another name. Did he have a, a private life, maybe, where he was hooked up with someone? It, it come, Elizabeth Taylor comes to my mind, but I don't think yeah. that was him. That was somebody else. I, I felt the same way. I was like, his name sounds familiar, and I looked at his TV credits and I thought well I've seen those so maybe it's I just you know recognized him or, or recognized that name uh now Agnes Moorhead had kind of a smaller role as Mrs. Blair but Agnes Moorhead is is a legend of course she was and I want to say and Bewitched had just ended right about this this time period uh, of course she's playing Andorra on Bewitched is what she's probably most well known for to a lot of people I also know her for playing uh, the role of Margot Lane on the old-time radio uh, version of The Shadow. She played opposite Orson Welles and then Bill Johnston. I think she was on the show for five years. Um, she was a well-known old-time radio actress. Um, did a lot of work on old-time radio episodes. But The Shadow is, is something she did for about five seasons worth. And, and her work... If you're a Shadow fan, an old-time radio fan, she's the definitive Margot Lane on old-time radio. She's the definitive Endora, for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So she plays Mrs. Blair, who's the housekeeper, I guess, of the house that uh, young Victor Frankenstein goes to and where he's staying during the, the period of his experiments and creation of the monster. Richard, did you not think she is the Una O'Connor of Frankenstein, the true story? <laughs> if there's ever going to be anyone close, yeah, she, she definitely She did a little over-the-top performance there. Not as, as shrill as Una, but I definitely made that relationship. Yeah, I could see that. I, I could see that. 
Uh, we had a, uh, Sir Ralph Richardson in uh, again, kind of a smaller role. I think his he was he was there for name value. I think played Mr. Lacey. A lot of genre films: uh, Greystoke, Legend of, of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, Time Bandits, Dragon Slayer, Rollerball, Tales from the Crypt, Whoever Slew, Auntie Rue, Doctor Shivago. Of course, not genre, but a classic. Did you know that he made his debut in 1933's The Ghoul opposite Boris Karloff and Ernest Thessinger? Yes. Did not. He had had a small supporting role. I can't remember the character's name, but that was his his, uh, theatrical debut. Interesting credit opposite Boris Karloff. No kidding. Who just happened to play the monster in a little film called Frankenstein. (sighs) Everything kind of fits together like a big puzzle. You've got uh, Sir John Gilgood, who played Chief Constable. Again, I believe he was there for probably name recognition. I think it was only one scene. Yeah, maybe I don't two. think he was in two at most. Of course, he'd become known about a decade later for Arthur. Um, he was in Gandhi, Chariots of Fire. Of course, he was well-known prior to Frankenstein for performances in like Hamlet and Beckett. Definitely a, a well-accomplished actor. He also played Sherlock Holmes on, uh, again, an old-time radio broadcast. So last but not least, and here's my Doctor Who connection, Tom Baker played the sea captain. Uh, he was about a year away from uh, taking on the role as the fourth Doctor on Doctor Who. Of course, he was doing other parts around this time period, Vault of Horror, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, movie called The Mutations, which is a remake of Freaks, also known under the title The Freak Maker, which starred uh, Donald Pleasance. Hmm. Uh, that's a bizarre film. I, I used to have it, and it got purged years ago. I didn't realize that was a remake of Freaks. Yeah, huh. yeah, a bizarre, I mean, loose adaptation, but yeah, it's definitely a remake of Freaks. Uh, and he played, keep mentioning Sherlock Holmes, he played Sherlock Holmes in a... Uh, BBC miniseries called Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, which came out in the early 80s. Now, he was not last nor least. You didn't even mention who plays the creature. Michael Uh, Sarazen. Oh, my gosh. I missed the creature. Michael Sarazen. And I I like Michael Sarazen a lot. He's perfect for this role because one of the unique characteristics about this is that the creature created is not an ugly, hideous monster. He is a beautiful man uh, and that the word beauty and beautiful is played up all through the movie but yeah he he comes out perfect and and michael sarazen he was in a movie the reincarnation of peter proud which i absolutely love don't remember which came first but it was about this time he did a lot of mainstream movie work i mean he he was you know definitely a busy actor uh genre related the only thing really other that i could find was that he was in an episode of star trek deep space nine Honestly, don't even remember that episode. Uh, but I, and I think he, he was a young actor that I believe was coming up and was being groomed for the next big thing. And he was in a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't yes, They? Yeah. I think that's where he really got notoriety. Reincarnation of Peter Proud was two years after. It was in 75. But I also know him from a movie in between there in 1974 for Pete's sake. With Barbara Streisand. Oh, yeah, yeah. Love that movie. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I really like Michael Sarazen, and he, he's good in this as well. Very impressive cast. Again, I think a lot of these actors and actresses were brought in for their name recognition. This was a big two-part TV adaptation. 
And so they wanted some big names. They were all featured prominently in the opening credits, even though they only had one scene. They they would have their their picture, their name in the opening credits to capitalize on the fact that they were starring in this film. When you look at some of the other other credits, like you know, as far as the the teleplay and, and the direction, it was directed by Jack Smite. Not a name that just rolls off the tongue. He's got a few films within the genre. Of course, he did the big war epic Midway, uh, which some will say is an overblown epic. Uh, He would do Damnation Alley a few years later, which is a guilty pleasure of mine. Some people hate that movie. I actually enjoy it. It's just low-budget, cheesy fun. Much better film. Um, He directed The Illustrated Man which is a great anthology film starring Rod Steiger based on the Ray Bradbury book. Um, He did lots of TV work, including four episodes of The Twilight Zone. So again, not necessarily um, a super well-known director, but I think did an incredible job with Frankenstein. And you got the teleplay written by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, not the run. Mm -hmm. Um, Not even spelled the same. Not even spelled the same. They, of course, loosely adapted the the novel by Mary Shelley. We alluded to earlier that supposedly they weren't happy with, with the finished product. There was some, some decisions that were made that they didn't necessarily agree with. The script, of course, was adapted into a, a paperback tie-in, and there was some things incorporated in that paperback that we did not see in the movie a prologue in which Mary Shelley is telling her tale of horror to uh, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, and Dr. Polidori is actually in that scene. Supposedly would have featured uh, Nicola Pageant as Mary, uh, Leonard uh, Whiting as Shelley, and David McCallum as Byron, and James Mason as Polidori, which would have been, I guess, kind of the connecting point of the prologue to the film. And instead of that, what they ended up doing for the prologue is very interesting. The And I don't know if it was only on the uh, DVD. I don't know if when no, it originally I re- aired. I remember that. Oh, do you? Okay. I do vividly remember So it that. starts up with uh, James Mason Polidori riding up in his carriage to, I guess, was that the Frankenstein home or was that the Elizabeth's home? Anyway, he rides up and then freeze frame and then the actor James Mason comes on and he talks about what we are about to see. In a modern setting. He's like in in modern day England. Exactly. And he's walking through a cemetery and goes supposedly to the grave of Mary Shelley, which is not actually her grave. Uh, But he just, he talks about how, you know, we've never seen a a production of Frankenstein like this. And they show clips uh, for what is going to come through the rest of the episode up clear through the end. Then, concluding that, and I don't know if there would have been a commercial at that point, but then the the story goes back to the beginning in scenes well before Polidori rides up and and the story begins proper. I I like Frankenstein. I didn't like the James Mason in the modern day setting. That made no sense. And see, on, on the DVD version we watched is essentially both parts back to back at any other point. I mean, there's no epilogue, there's no introduction at the beginning, and then never repeated it. Um, yeah, and it seems like, I mean, that's an easy part. We don't 
know if it's because of they added this introduction, but the movie starts rather abruptly before you even have your bearings of what's going on that has happened. And that, of course, will be the catalyst for every time with that to even learn who is that person uh, ahead of time with his brother, Victor, that his death would cause him to do everything he does. I think even to see, you know, maybe the affection they had for each other, that kind of thing, without knowing really who that character was, that death had no impact on me as a viewer. I'm like, okay, we witnessed somebody die. Now, obviously it plays out as the movie goes on, but I think that could have been done better. And I think that's another, the opening, actually, really the whole opening of the film is odd in the way that it's, it's, it's constructed, very non-traditional. And I can imagine a bit jarring for, someone in 1973 diving into this is like, if you're flipping channels and this is the opening star of the movie, is it going to be something that's really going to pull you into the film or would seeing, you know, a, a dad, the prologue with, with Shelley and telling her tales of horror, which would be reminiscent of Bride of Frankenstein. Would that have potentially drawn people in more? I don't know. And I'd almost rather they omit that scene because the next scene is the funeral and Victor walks out of the funeral. He says, you know, why is this God's will? Any fool can give death. Why can't we give life? Uh, If Satan could teach me how to make William live again, I'd gladly become his pupil. It could have easily have started at a funeral and we learn it was his brother. That, That little scene. That would have been a much better start. Eliminating the whole James Mason prologue. And the whole drowning sequence and starting with that scene in the cemetery with him or the, in the uh, church, but him then walking up and walking out would have been a much more powerful start to the film. I think so. Yeah. So let's, I mean, this is, as we said, this is a more psychological telling as the movie goes on. I mean, there's a lot of similarities to the age old tale, but there's some key differences. The, the character of, of Dr. Uh, Clervell is is a mentor and he's really kind of the the mad scientist of the piece victor is is less a mad scientist in this film he certainly he had some out of the box ideas shall we say but he's not viewed in this film quite as much of a mad scientist as he is whether we're watching colin clive or certainly peter cushing who comes across much more mad and and their and their methods and gestures yeah i like the way you said that out of the box because yeah that scene i just depicted at the funeral it is his idea he has that idea i don't think he has an earthly idea of how to execute that idea if he didn't you know run across clerval when he returns to university i don't know that he ever really would have created that was clerval who, who who spurred him on you know and i think yeah i think i think whereas you know, in other adaptations, it, it is clearly Victor's idea, and he's doing it on his own. Yeah. And I don't know if there—I don't recall another Clavel in any other Frankenstein movie. There have been people like them, but they have always been under Frankenstein's tutelage and have been his assistant or someone to bounce ideas off or, or someone to help him. But it, Frankenstein you, normally, in most movies, is more in charge of the situation— I think one of the reasons they did that is they wanted to make Frankenstein more sympathetic. I don't think they wanted him to be the bad guy of this story. No, and I think, you know, again, it, it, when the creature is created, 
again, we have a, a, an attractive, good-looking creature, which again is, you know, for the most part, you know, I think the only time we saw anything remotely like that was in one of the Hammer films where he created... Woman? A woman, yeah. Frank Frankenstein created a woman where he creates someone who's beautiful and and ends up kind of going down a darker path, but it, she doesn't have the hideous appearance that we would typically associate with the creature. Yeah, so the the thing here that takes it into the world of horror is that, yeah, he's born or created beautiful, but he starts to deteriorate. And this is a fact that is becomes evident, I believe, to Clerval through another experiment and knows that's going to happen uh, before Victor does. Things happen to Clerval, Victor kind of figures it out on his own, but what happens is he just, he literally starts to deteriorate. He gets huge patches on his face where skin goes away and there's gray underneath. Really good, sort of subtle makeup, I would say, through the whole movie. He never becomes a total monster, but by the end, he certainly, it looked like they had put an appliance on his brow, you know, to make it so that it was swollen and his eyes are sunken and very subtle, very horrific, nevertheless. Essentially, he's rotting, really. It's, True. It's, it's, he's rotting, and both mentally, because he's becoming more animalistic uh, in nature, and and he's not as eloquent as as he was. And so it's almost like he's rotting uh, from the inside out, mentally and physically. Now, I have a question. This might be jumping ahead. I, I don't know. So, spoilers, right? Clairvel dies, and isn't it his brain that they put in, that Victor puts into the creature? That's how I followed it, yeah. Okay, so my question is, and this is not particularly for this movie, but any Frankenstein movie, it it just struck me here. Why does the brain not maintain the memories of Clairvel? It's reset, basically. It's the brain of a child. Victor has to teach him how to eat and how to say words I guess a little later, though, doesn't it? It sort of comes back, doesn't it? I think so. There, maybe it was yeah. just in a dormant state or something. I don't, I don't know. know. It Maybe the the equivalent of of such a traumatic experience is the equivalent of a stroke or something coming out or, of a coma, or something. Yeah. Something okay. Like that. I guess that or makes sense. Like sometimes you retain memories, but sometimes you don't. But you do have to be reeducated. He doesn't. He he walks immediately, so he certainly has has that ability, and he speaks beautiful, being his first word, right? Um, so, I mean, so certainly he retained some of it, you know, some of it he had to be re-educated. Did we miss anything really significant that happens before that creation? We need, oh, I will say it got well through the first part and I thought, well, this is going to be a Frankenstein movie where there's no one digging in graves, but they did ultimately have a scene where they went grave digging, grave digging to get body parts, but it, it really plays for a long time. Like it's, there's not going to be anything like that. It's a much more, again, dramatic telling of the story and, and the horror elements are, are certainly are present. And indeed there are really some very horrific moments, but then there's in between those elements, you've got really kind of long stretches where it's simply telling a story and it's, it's, it's much more of a Gothic story with a hint of horror um, at times kind of lurking in the background and then a horrific moment will come forth and, and then it goes back into the background again. One of the significant original ideas in this is the way the creature is created not from lightning or from a storm but from solar power. Yeah. He's so, I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I had 
I rewatched that scene this morning, the creation sequence, and I, I, I liked the, the Frankenstein lab, so to speak. I mean, I liked it. It was, it was elements of, of that we had seen in others, but also different, vastly different in some ways. And I actually liked, uh, I liked the way that that uh, that was overall handled. Yeah, let's talk about the production a little bit. Uh, we mentioned the cast that was so great. Production values top notch. I don't have names of any of the creative people involved, but yeah, Richard talks about the set. One thing that struck me was the hospital that Victor goes to when he returns to university to pick up his studies. Very bleak, very dark. Walls were peeling paint. It, a lot of detail for really a scene like that, which isn't in it that song. Plus, it just reminded me of the times, what a dirty, filthy place a hospital was, and that's somewhere you're supposed to go to get cured and healed. And well, they just they, they, they throw that, that poor guy on the table and then just whip out the saw and like, give him a shot of bourbon and give him another shot. Is it going to hurt? Saw, saw, saw. Hey, I'm going to take this arm and throw it in the bucket. Is this, yeah, very realistic for the time period. It was not a time period you wanted to get sick in. I guess that that plays a big part as to why you didn't have people living to be a ripe old age. I mean, you had medical conditions like that. Uh, a simple, a simple broken bone could very well be the death of you if you had to get it amputated. I don't think that they were very clean, very antiseptic. I, I think it uh, people could get you know diseases just from from breaking a simple bone. And, you know, now that I think about it, that's sort of an interesting contrast because a lot of this movie is set in high society, ballrooms, fancy dresses, proper marriages and and families. And then you see this other side that's this horrible, dirty hospital. And really, basically from that is where the, the evil or the horror comes from. So it's an interesting contrast. I'm not sure I've really thought about that before. Uh, the other thing I, in the early parts I would say is I think Elizabeth's role is beefed up a bit. Usually she's going to get married and he leaves her at least temporarily to go do his experiment. And that's about it. She's someone there. And of course, later she may become a victim or the monster might use her as leverage against Frankenstein. But here she she plays a bigger role. And certainly her parents do. Her parents, um, those were... You mentioned Michael Wilding earlier. Uh, Sir Richard Farnshaw was Elizabeth's father, and and they play a big role. She, I, I don't know. Did did you agree? Did you think she played a bigger part? I think bigger than than she is in most films. Yeah, I mean, obviously in a lot of films she's not even seen, depending on which version you're watching, or she's or her role is so downplayed. Definitely, uh, her role was beefed up. I agree in, in this film. Plus he's a stronger woman, I think. Yeah, and plus he brings her in, I think, where he doesn't always. Doesn't he eventually she wants to know what's going on and doesn't he show her? Yeah, I mean yeah, I mean he kind of includes her into to the work to to an extent, which is again something that's missing in a lot of other adaptations, is like and she's and she's always uh, more times than not, she's played very much as the damsel. You know, it's like, you know, she she just simply just wants her husband or soon to be husband back. Uh, and, and has little interest in the work. She just wants him to basically come home and and leave all that behind. And so uh, she's a much stronger character here. Uh, and I, again, having not seen any of other uh, Nicola Pageant's work, I mean, she clearly 
you know, I, I think it probably brought a lot to the role because she's done a lot of television work. I'm assuming she was a bit more well-known uh, in 73 than she is today. So, so I mean, that's pretty much part one. The creature is created. I, I sort of divide it up as part one is Frankenstein, part two is Bride of Frankenstein. But we do have a climax at the end of part one where the creature or Victor confronts the creature or been a while since I watched it, but I think the creature realizes he's deteriorating and is heartbroken about that. And so he basically tries to commit suicide. He throws himself over a cliff, lands on the beach, of course gets up and walks down the beach. And that is where part one ends. I I do want to say here too, as far as production values go, the dummy that they used when he threw off a cliff is one of the best I've ever seen. <laughs> Usually, you know, the arms and the legs are flopping yeah, and it, yeah. it's like they're stuffed with newspaper when you used to build a scarecrow at Halloween. So a lot of money was put into this dummy. It looked very realistic, looked like a man actually going over. Uh, so that's another example of attention to detail that, that the movie played. Can you think of anything else from part one that you want to mention? No, um, I think that was a good cliffhanger. It was a good way to end. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally, Cliff, yes. anyway. Again, being that it was the end of part one, you want to bring people into part two. Clearly, the big cliffhanger is the creature alive or dead. You know there's a whole other part coming, so where's the rest of the story come into play? So it was a good, good way to end it. And part two backtrack, backtracks just a little bit. It shows him getting up on the beach. Yes, indeed, he is alive and walks off into, I guess, a forest or the woods that are nearby to the beach. I guess it's become such a trope in these movies. I was a little disappointed that we had a blind musician that he encounters and goes into the cabin Uh, that's nitpicking it's just a personal choice that's a big part of the story he's got to meet someone who can't see him that recognizes him as a human Uh, not a complaint i guess just a personal preference that uh, and maybe at that time it probably wasn't as familiar a trope as it is today it was funny because when i watched that sequence i for whatever reason i wasn't drawn back to Bride of Frankenstein. I was yeah. I was drawn into Young Frankenstein. Yep. That is what happens. That yep. I don't know. The impact of that sequence is is becomes almost comical no matter how you look at it. I think it was unnecessary because in the original Bride of Frankenstein, that is the first time that we really hear the monster speak and begin to really kind of develop uh, some more humanistic mannerisms. Whereas here, he'd already been that. I don't know. It seemed unnecessary in this particular version. I think you could have eliminated that, and it would have been, I think it would have been fine. They did turn it into something very, very clever, though. The the blind man's daughter or granddaughter was Agatha, Jane Seymour, and the creature gets an attachment to her, unseen, of course. She panics when she sees him and his state of deterioration runs out into the road and is run over by a carriage. Another example of a great dummy. That was very realistic when uh, the carriage ran over. And I guess that, that's, that's probably why that, that scene is there. That does serve, does serve a purpose. I don't know. I think it maybe could have been done differently without having to tie in the old Gene Hackman musician living in the forest routine. And then I think it, it just gets kind of odd as Polidori becomes more... Uh, 
a central character. This is a little the the reason for creating and not really a bride, but Prima, the, the girl, is is different and unique than other movies. Uh, the way she's created is different. I guess, in essence, Polidori is like... Who is it in Bride? Pretorius? Yes, Pretorius. Polidori is like Pretorius in that his methods of creation are magical or mystical rather than scientific i guess maybe not so much here because there is more of a it's more of a chemical i guess creation that really brings prima to life you know what i thought of when i saw that scene a lava lamp (laughs) no not when i saw that scene initially i was i I, it, it harkened back to monster bash when we watched the edison version of frankenstein and how frankenstein the monster is essentially created i don't know if that was intentional, because the Edison version was lost at that point and had not been seen for decades. I, I have a feeling that, but now when you look at it, it's like, wow, there's, there, I, to me, there was a, a lot of similarity. Right. But I don't think it was, it, it would have been intentional in 73 because no one had seen the Edison version. I don't think that resurfaced until maybe the 80s, maybe the 90s even. It was, it was still lost, I believe, in 73. And this is terrible. It's been so long since I've read Frankenstein, and I should know this. But I think even in the novel originally by Mary Shelley, he was created from more, at least vague, means than you know something as literal as raising him to the sky and having lightning strike. I wasn't that whole notion pretty much done. And there the was first more Frankenstein. There movie? was definitely more mystical nature to it than than the you know the more graphic that became the more popular as as different versions so not only does polidori favor these other methods he's downright critical of the methods that frankenstein and clerval used to create the creature he seems to have known that doing it with electricity would cause these results and isn't surprised that their beautiful creature became uh, deteriorated. Uh, he crit- criticizes all through the movie the the means of of electricity as a a way to bring him to life and, and, and favors his methods. I've so, done a little bit of research oh, like, okay. about this the the Edison version of, of Frankenstein. Apparently, in in 1963, there was plot description and stills were discovered. Uh, published in a March 15, 1910 edition of the film catalog, The Edison Kinetogram. There was a print of the film purchased by a Wisconsin film collector, Alois Detlef, probably butchering that name, in the early 1950s. But he didn't realize its rarity until many years later. Its existence was first revealed in the mid-1970s in a very uh, deteriorated state. And a 35 millimeter preser- uh, preserved copy was made in the late 1970s. So it's a little earlier than I thought. I still don't think, though, in '73, beyond seeing the plot description in stills, they would have had access to that film. But it's possible that they may have read about the film, and maybe that that kind of played a part in in, in the finished product. I don't know. I hmm. could be. We could be seeing stuff. I could be seeing stuff that's not there. But for me, that was definitely, uh, definitely uh, a connection that I. Yeah, had. I, I can see that. 
So refresh me, what was the purpose really of bringing the woman to life? I know the creature brings her mangled body to the laboratory. He doesn't know that Polidori is there, right? He thinks probably that's where Victor still is, and maybe he's bringing her so that Victor can help her. Yeah, that, that was where but I got But he doesn't ever, he becomes a pawn then of Polidori. It's never yes. the creature's desire to bring her back to life. So that's a little, I just remember it being different. I don't remember the particulars of the reason for for bringing Prima to life. Other well, Poly- than it Polidori's, he's the mad scientist at this point. Mad scientist, and he's wanting to create, I don't know, you, not necessarily a companion, but he wanted to create this person, though, that would kind of semi really kind of be a companion to him. I mean, oh, to him, yes, yeah. not to the creature, not yeah. to the creature. In fact, I mean, he does later talk about all the plans he has. He's going to use this Prima to infiltrate government and run the world, and he doesn't even really talk so much about it being a new breed of, of human that he's going to use. He's talking specifically about her and how she is going to help him achieve all of these. Yeah, goals. it's more about his goals, right? It, it really, uh, not necessarily. Like, it's like she she is going to be his property, I guess, that he's going to use, which, again, is a different kind of take on Because I, I don't think we've ever really had that in another movie where a creature, bride or otherwise, has been created with the purpose of using that person as a as a tool to gain wealth and, and power. I don't believe that's ever been touched on in another Frankenstein version. Right, and so Polidori also uses the creature as a a means of blackmail to Victor, so that Victor will assist him. And why is that? Why can Polidori not conduct some of these experiments on his own? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. He has no hands. Oh my gosh, the hands! Yes, <laughs> yes. He removes his gloves, and he has yes. mangled stumps for hands. That's certainly a new uh, feature of the story. Yeah, yeah. Because up to that point, you know, I you always thought maybe he just had gloves on or something. But then there was some scenes where he was doing the weird gestures, and you're like, you know, opening things or whatever. You're kind of like wondering what is up with this guy's hands. I had forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, and I had forgotten it until I rewatched it, and it was truly shocking at that point. I, yeah, and it was pretty graphic yes, too, if yes. I recall. That was that was there was again. There's some very graphic moments in this, and that was certainly. I remember when that happened. I was like, whoa, that's kind of graphic for '73 television. So the bride's created, or I keep saying the bride, the equivalent of the bride is created, and he wants to show her off to society. So one of those big, beautiful balls that we mentioned earlier, he brings her, and she's the life of the party. All the men are smitten by her, want to dance with her. But then the creature bursts in, probably at one of his worst states of decay, and is not really happy about what's going on. Yeah. Clearly, maybe the affection for her or anger at the situation. I don't know. Yeah, I can't. I don't really remember what brought him there. And I don't know that he came originally so angry. If But the, the shrieks of the people that saw him and running in the chaos and people maybe trying to tackle him, aggravated of course, him. aggravated him. And it culminates in possibly the most iconic scene of of this movie, would you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, very, very horrific moment. Tell us what happens. Well, this is where um, the creature um, 
rips the head of, <laughs> of uh, Prima off. I mean, just out of anger, I guess, or out of maybe trying to, I don't know, reclaim in a way. I don't know if he had felt a connection to her, but and I don't know if it was even the intent of ending her life, but maybe it was. I don't know. What do you think? What was his intentions behind it? I mean, because it was animalistic. He rips the head off, and of course, you know, everyone's screaming, and you've got, again, graphic moment for 73 television. I am not really recalling what the what his motivation was at that point. It, it was some. It wasn't that just he was crazy because he had de- deteriorated. He was angry about something. And but, I think but was it, he locked up? Did had Polidori locked him up? Yeah, I think. I think it was. I think there was. I don't know. I think it was kind of like he felt, you know, maybe responsible for her death. He wanted her brought back to life, but maybe not as a tool. Maybe it was he. He wanted her brought back to life. To, to save her life, but not be this this tool that Polidori was using, and so in his maybe in his mind it was to to end the life uh, that he maybe felt responsible for, maybe in in playing a part in bringing it back to life, and not not being happy with with the that fact that she was now a pawn being used by Polidori. Yeah, and the way that film was filmed was very good as well i mean the the frame of the camera you know to her real head as he was pulling it and then i believe didn't then the head roll across the floor somebody probably kicked it as they were running (laughs) i don't know yeah it was it was well done you very well done know what happened you you didn't scream fakery It, it 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 was good no it was it was it was well done graphic and and I had forgotten that part actually when that came up. I was like, I was shocked when that came up. I had I had not remembered that part of the movie. Again, it had been more than three decades since I've seen it. So uh, there were parts that, that I remembered vividly, you know, and then other parts that that I just didn't remember at all. And that was I didn't have any member a memory of that climactic moment at all. Yeah. And so then the movie at this point is the point where in other Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein movies, it usually ends. There is a, an incident at the lab and it explodes. And so that's destroyed. And then we've had this incident at the ball. Normally it would have started wrapping up then, but really we get not really an epilogue. It's still quite a bit of, of time spent on it, but another part of the story. And this did remind me of the novel because it, it takes place part of it on a ship, and then ultimately, I guess, at the North Pole where it's snowy and cold. That's something I, I definitely remember from the Mary Shelley novel, and we don't usually see that no, part no. in a Frankenstein movie. No. But that is probably the closest thing to the original novel. Well, and I, and I've you know I've always wondered why we don't see that scene more because I, I love that whole sequence. Other than maybe from a production standard, I mean, it, it's it's going to maybe cost more to do that sequence on the ship. I don't view it as anticlimactic. I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a good wrapping up of the story. Really, uh, I guess maybe it depends on what's what version of the creature are we getting? Are we getting this is a, a version of the creature who still is able to, even though he's very animalistic, but he's also still very human in many ways. Could you witness that sequence being played out with the? With the Karloff version of the monster, probably no, not. Because he's, he's, he's never as intelligent, right? And I can't think of. I, there was a movie, what Frankenstein Unbound, Roger Corman did, whether they did kind of a, a sequence like that, uh, part of that or whatever. But usually, the monster is portrayed much more 
simplistically or animalistically. And so I can see, I guess, why they don't, because it wouldn't necessarily, it'd be hard to see Karloff or Lugosi or Cheney in, in that role. Yeah, I, that's that's a good point. I, I'm sure that's why. Uh, but on the ship, on the way, Polidori pops up. He's still around. The creature pops up. Everyone ends up on this ship, which I think was intended for Victor and Elizabeth to just sort of sail away from yeah. their problems and get away from things. But everyone's there. Good uh, suspense, mood, atmosphere on the ship, rocking at sea and treachery and betrayal. Uh, the the scene where the creature gives Polidori his due by hooking him and raising him yeah. to the sky that that was all excellent. Yeah, I I love that whole sequence. I think that was great. Again, um, uh, in this particular version of the story, it works it works incredibly well. Yeah, and then by the end, it's just the two that survive: Victor and his creature walking into the snow of the North Pole. And this is where the the script contained an epilogue that was not filmed, and I kind of wish it would have been. Essentially, you know, following the the avalanche of, of snow, uh, we we see the seasons change. the The ice melts, and, and the creature's body uh, begins to float uh, into warmer waters. And as the ice melts, we see one of his hands. Uh, absorbing the rays of the sun, uh, and as it's described in, in what I read, uh, it responds like a flower. It opens up, and the hand begins to slowly move. I granted, I understand why they didn't include this because, as film, there's a definitive end to the story. This would have left the opening for a sequel, clearly to to be done. But I love that. I think that would have been a much better ending. I mean, I like the ending as it was. I think with the hand moving would have been better. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I'm not sure it's such a definitive end as you say, because Frankenstein comes back from anything. You can assume that the avalanche didn't crush him. But that would just have been a nice little stinger to have at the end. I, and as it is, even though the, the avalanche is such a, a climac- climactic scene, it just then sort of ends. And that would have just been a nice little coda to have on it. Well, I think so. I mean, as you said, well, the monster, you know, we assume the monster could potentially survive. But you don't see it. And so if you don't see it, then it's left up to the viewer to interpret, well, you know, the monster's still going to survive. Or, nope, this is definitely going to be the end. This is the, nope, monster's still alive. You know, mm-hmm. what's going to happen next? I would, have, I would have liked to have seen that done. Wow, I have to say, after going through this and talking with you, I think I like it a little more than I thought I did. You brought up some great points that I hadn't thought of. It makes me appreciate certain aspects of it more. That's why I love talking about movies with you so much. You bring so much to it that I don't think of. So I, uh, I'll raise my opinion of it just a little bit here, and uh, I kind of want to watch it again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not perfect, but at least we get to see it now. As it was originally seen, uh, the DVD, which was released in uh, 2006, I believe, not a lot of extras with it, but uh, it is the unedited version. It's it's just just over three hours long, uh, and that's really the best way to see it. Uh, if you've seen another version or an edited version, you're missing out. And, and it's uh, anytime a miniseries is cut down like that you lose certain plot points or certain 
uh, key developments. So uh, seek out the 2006 DVD. It's still in print. It's super cheap on Amazon. Well worth seeing. You know, we talked about the reason why this movie kind of slipped into obscurity and sadly remains in obscurity today because it's just not something that gets is going to get shown on television. Besides us talking here and talking with Sam uh, in the last episode, I don't recall it ever really being talked about on any of the other podcasts that I listen to. And I, if there's another podcast out there who's talked about it, let us know. I'd love to hear you know what they say about it because I just don't think I've ever heard it talked about. And I, until this magazine, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, issue 38, came out, I can't recall ever seeing it. Even in any type of book I've got, I've got a uh, a book called Fantastic Television that was uh, printed late 70s, circa 1980, that actually has it listed in its made-for-TV movie section, which at the time, again, it was making the rounds of the UHF stations with great regularity. But, you know, after that, I've never seen it pop up in any other books. Hmm. Yeah, I got it a couple years ago. It came in back into my consciousness for some reason. And so I looked on Amazon, and yeah, it was cheap, so I got it. It was something I wanted to have. But yeah, certainly nothing. I think it's mentioned here and there, but there has been nothing coming close to the significance that this magazine pays it. So yeah, check that out. Check out the magazine, Little Shop of Horrors. Check out Sam Irvin. It's been a great couple of episodes talking about this. Any last words before we take a break and then come back with our regular features? No, no, I've had a lot of fun. This is just another one of those... uh, and this was a rediscovery for me. This wasn't a first time viewing, but it felt like it because it had been so long. So uh, uh, just another reason why I love doing, uh, doing the Classic Horus Club podcast. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Okay, so that was from August of 2017, which seems like a lifetime ago. But uh, a lot of fun to visit uh, back to that episode about a wonderful movie that, of course, is now out on Blu-ray. And so, yeah, we kind of did the Wayback Machine there. So I don't know if that makes me Sherman and UP body or UP body and, and me, me Sherman. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Does, he, does either of us have our glasses on right now? Uh, I have mine right here. I could put I, it's on now. And I don't. So <laughs> OK, there we go. I'm Sherman. So obviously, uh, when that was recorded, Frankenstein, the true story was only available on DVD. I watched it on YouTube because there was a good copy of it. Now, of course, it's been given the Blu-ray treatment and is available from Shout Factory. You know, there's so many good companies putting out great classic films. Shout Factory is at the top of the list, though, when it comes to all these different Blu-ray companies and films getting Blu-ray releases that you never would think possible. Shout Factory is at the top. I would certainly put Kino Lorber at the top of that list. And then you have some other companies out there like Raro Video or Severin Films. I just saw the release announcement that Horrors of Spider Island is coming out from Severin Films. Mind-boggling that that movie is getting a Blu-ray release. But Shout Factory gets the cream of the crop. Frankenstein the True Story is is available now as we speak on Blu-ray. I don't have my copy yet, but I will have it by the time this goes live. I know your copy 
is sitting in the Great White North <laughs> waiting for you to return to it. Whenever I return there, I did check before I left, and they are going to hold all packages. So sometime this fall, I may return to pick up my Blu-ray. <laughs> gotcha. And I, before you go on, I just want to say one quick thing. One thing I remember from that review, it was a minor quibble I had with the DVD, and that was the cover. I didn't particularly like the cover art. So I just want to say... Boy, did the Blu-ray make up for that, oh. that beautiful Mark Maddox cover that is certainly not a quibble with the Blu-ray. Even though I have not held it in my hands, I have certainly seen pictures of it, and it's just beautiful. Yeah, Mark does amazing work. Did you, going off on a, on a tangent, which I don't think we've really done much of this episode, have you seen uh, he posted some work that his daughter did? Yes. And, and like obviously, she the talent is is genetic because it was absolutely amazing. You know, Mark is is uh, done some amazing work, continues to do amazing work. In fact, he's doing the cover for Horrors of Spider Island, which may be the the best thing about that Blu-ray release. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but that's that's a movie like Ega that kind of makes you kind of scratch your head and thinking that movie's getting a Blu-ray release. Okay, but. You know what? I saw Werewolf in a girl's dormitory, and I got to say that the the print of that was stunning and was well worth getting that on Blu-ray. It enhanced the the pleasure of watching that movie immensely. So I it may very well be the same case with Horrors of Spider Island. But Mark has done the work. He is certainly up for a Rondo Award again. As we're, I don't know if, when the awards are going to be announced. I know that the voting has stopped. So by the time our episode goes live, I don't know if the awards will be announced or if it'll be later in, in April, but Mark has certainly been nominated. Sam, was, Sam wasn't nominated this year, was he? Well, considering the, the noticeable lack of Facebook posts proclaiming that he has, <laughs> I don't believe he was. <laughs> That's a good call. Yes, obviously. Yeah, that'd be a giveaway. Love you, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Hyping up this Blu-ray, let me talk just a few things about what you get on this Blu-ray. According to, again, Sam's posts from Facebook, it is a uh, new 2K scan of the original Phil Elements to the two-part, three-hour, six-minute version, including the introduction by actor James Mason, the previews of part two, narrated by James Mason, and the recap of part one, narrated by Leonard Whiting. You get a new three-hour and six-minute wall-to-wall audio commentary with filmmaker and film historian Sam Irvin. You get a new Off With Her Head interview with actress Jane Seymour, conducted by Sam Irvin. I should say all of these are conducted by Sam, because he also did an interview with actor Leonard Whiting called Victor's Story. He did a uh, conversation with writer Don uh, Bacardi, that's how it's pronounced, called Frankenstein's Diary. The audio commentary and the three new interviews were produced by Sam Irvin and Constantine Nasir. And uh, yeah, the artwork from Mark Maddox. So I think Sam did a lot of this work uh, right before the holidays, if I recall. Sam was actually, Sam and I had talked about connecting to do an interview for the blog. And as it turned out, that didn't work because Sam was over in England recording and doing all of this work. With good reason why he, he didn't uh, do the interview on the blog, because he was busy piecing this together. I'm Really looking forward to getting this and checking it out. You know, I think this is probably going to be the the definitive version of it. I don't know, you know, if you can get anything better from a early 1970s made-for-television two-part movie 
I think this Blu-ray is going to be the definitive version. That's going to be the best. So I look forward to getting my copy and hopefully, you know, uh, listening to this show, you, you picked up a few things by it in a couple of weeks, you know, tune into the remastered episode where we interview Sam and talk to him about Frankenstein, as well as other films that he did, uh, his work, uh, with Elvira and uh, the Oblivion movies. A lot of good stuff coming up. That's sort of a segue into new business. Are we ready to do that and talk about other releases that are coming out? Absolutely. All right. Well, we're in April, and uh, this should be hitting on April 6th, Monday. So to answer your question about uh, Rondo Awards, chances are they were announced last night. If that's the case, congratulations to all the winners. Tomorrow, the 7th, if you so desire, you can pick up Beyond the Door, 1974 from Arrow Video. That uh, I, I feel like this first couple we've mentioned before. I don't know if we went a week into April last time or not, but I remember talking about Beyond the Door. It's a, sort of one of the Exorcist ripoffs from uh, 1974 with Juliet Mills. And also one we've mentioned ever since we've heard it announced, and that's Supernatural from 1933 that is coming from Kino Lorber. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a purchase for me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to that. And talk about great cover art. The movie poster for that, just the original movie poster is just beautiful. It's one of the most striking uh, posters possibly ever, in my opinion. Yeah, that's great. April 14th, uh, speaking of Shout Factory, we have Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, also from 1974. We have from Kino Lorber, The Gollum, How He Came Into the World from 1920. So if I'm correct, there were like three versions of the Gollum originally from that same era. I don't know if they were remakes. Maybe one was a short film, one was a full-length feature, uh, a sequel. I'm not sure. But this is, uh, I think, the the main one out of the, the series of Gollum films that came out at that time. That will be out on Blu-ray. And then this is right up your alley, Rich. Jungle Queen, a 1945 serial with 13 chapters, is coming from VCI Entertainment. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. That's a whole other genre in itself, chapter serials. I mean, there are so many out there. I gravitate towards the ones I think that everyone typically does. Uh, the Flash Gordon's you know, chapter serials, Buck Rogers, uh, The Shadow. I'm familiar with some of the comic book ones, uh, Captain America. I don't recommend Captain America at all. That was horrible. Yeah, but I'm not familiar with that. I'm not familiar with Jungle Queen. So On the 21st, we have uh, the Shout Factory again with The Curse of the Werewolf. Hammer's 1961. Uh, only werewolf film Hammer did, I believe. And also, same day, The Spider, also known as Earth versus the Spider, from 1958. Rich, I wanted to ask you, is that one of those that was uh, not available for a long time because of the wife that had the rights to it or was that this not in that group i there's been a dvd release of that it was it was paired up with another movie i think i've got it actually but it's i'm not in the i'm not in the media room i'm actually in my office so i can't look at the wall i'm going to say no i think that that was one that had been previously i think it actually i think it may be paired up with how to make a monster so you know that's one that's been that has been released it's not one of the one of the lost ones, so to speak. We've talked about it previously. The Al Adamson collection is coming out from Severn. It's a gigantic box set of most, if not all, of Al Adamson's films. 
You probably know him from Frankenstein or Dracula meets Frankenstein. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Frankenstein versus Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> yeah, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Yeah. That and uh, probably notable for me in that set is the new documentary, Blood and Flesh, the real life and ghastly death of Al Adamson. I talked about it at length because I saw that at the Alamo Draft House a while back. Uh, I think you can probably get that separately or at least stream it. It's a fascinating documentary. Don't know much about his movies. Not a fan of uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Have you heard of this movie? It's called Secret Ceremony. It's from 1968. It has Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow, and Robert Mitchum. Yeah, it's a, a thriller. It, it's one that they. It's one of those from well, probably a little bit later where they you know, say no one will be admitted during the last twelve minutes of this movie. Uh, always leads you to think there's going to be a big twist. It looked pretty interesting. I. It must have been filmed in France. One site I looked at said that it was actually a French film. It, it is not. It's English language, but maybe it was filmed in France. I don't know. Anyway, Secret Ceremony looks kind of interesting. Don't know that I would buy Sight Unseen, but definitely makes me interested to watch it. I did find the, the Spider DVD release. It was paired with War of the Colossal Beast, and it was part of the uh, Samuel Z. Arkoff collection, Cult Classics, released from... Uh, Lionsgate back in 2006. Mm. It is out of print and is going for at least about $46 mm. on up. So you might be able to find it cheaper, but yeah, that that was uh, apparently not one of the films. So just confirm that. Well, I think you will be able to find it cheaper on Blu-ray. I believe so. Uh, so finally, last of the month, April 28th, The Lost Continent from 1968, another Hammer film. I think that makes three in April that are coming out from Shout Factory. Where are they going to go when they release all of those? They've they've got to be close to having a majority of the Hammer films released on Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't know. You know, It's like, what, what other film series do you go towards at that point? I, I don't know. Uh, just a few birthdays and uh, movie release anniversaries in April that I want to mention. The, the birthdays are sort of the big ones. You know, we would not be much of a classic horror podcast if we didn't mention them. Lon Chaney was born April 1st, 1883. So actually, today, happy birthday, Lon. Roger Corman was born May 26th, or excuse me, <laughs> April 5th, 1926. Rondo Hatton was born April 22nd, 1894. And William Castle, April 24th, 1914. Just a couple April anniversaries. Dark Shadows aired its final episode in on April 2nd, 1971. King Kong, the original, came out April 7th, 1933. And The Phantom of the Opera, April 26th, 1925. That's, of course, the silent classic with Lon Chaney. So just a smattering of, of birthdays and anniversaries, but some uh, pretty big ones in the month of April. You know, I was going to ask your thoughts, and I don't know if we talked about this the other day. You know, we, we were talking about these upcoming Blu-ray releases, and we haven't heard anything yet about, you know, what we're going through right now with the coronavirus and how, of course, other things have been shut down and delayed, whether or not that's going to affect Blu-ray release dates. I mean, some of these titles, obviously, that, that are coming out now, I would think that, you know, they've already been in production. Obviously, that didn't, you know, prevent 
Frankenstein, the true story from, from getting released. But I wonder the, the longer this goes, if some of these production companies are, you know, going to, you know, be able to continue to produce the, the product that they've, that they're announcing. I mean, Supernatural, I'm assuming is still going to be coming out, but some of these other titles, I don't know. You know, I haven't heard anything about that. Have you? I have not. And I don't know if it's a matter of just the simple manufacturing. I mean, there could be delays there with titles that have already been announced or uh, production. I mean, certainly if they're making special features, it could be possibly we'd see more bare bones maybe uh, if they want to release something and not, you know, go into the full production with all the bonus features. I don't know. <laughs> 2K scan this and 4K scan that. I don't really understand what that means, but that could possibly, you know, there could be a delay in the remastering. I don't know. I don't, I was going to say earlier and I didn't, but I, I don't think we really know yet the full effects of what, you know, is going to happen, what things are going to be delayed. I haven't heard anything specific, but I don't see that they're an immune industry to uh, some of the others that are experiencing delays. I, I think it could be. Well, I, I know that uh, Scary Monsters magazine, the next issue, the April issue, there was a lot of questions. It was kind of going back and forth. At one point, they knew that they that the printing was done, but it hadn't been bound yet. And so it was delayed indefinitely. And then I think just within the last few days, it sounds like it is going to be coming out, that they are getting it bound. And so uh, obviously mail is still running, so they're going to they're going to ship things out. To those who order it from their site, or to uh, uh, they'll have copies, you know, to subscribers. I would kind of think that Creepy Classics will probably get their supply that they sell, but obviously they're not shipping out to comic stores or to bookstores because none of those are open right now. So the availability of that issue is going to be somewhat limited, and depending on how long this goes on. You know, if it goes on for, you know, another month, two months, will that issue of Scary Monsters then come out at Barnes & Noble in early summer? It, they did seem to indicate that, you know, this might impact the release schedule going forward. I guess it'll just, we'll have to just kind of wait and see. But I thought about that that with, with the Blu-rays and DVDs. I mean, depending on where they're located, they're not going to be essential. And so... Right now, it's business as normal, but as we've seen with the comic book industry, that can change in a heartbeat. This is the first week. No new comics have been released. I want to say, certainly in modern history, and I think even dating back to World War II, even then when paper was limited, I, I can't recall, and I, I, you know, I don't know if you know, if, if comics, comics continued to be put out at that time, I don't think that anything was shut down in that regard. So comics. But I don't think Diamond Comics existed back in World War II. Well, <laughs> no, but I mean. Sorry. I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that obviously, you know, a distribution issue, but also printing issues, too. I mean. Right. So this is kind of unprecedented. I don't know. One of those things, I guess. Well, I was just going to say that uh, something you said about uh, Scary Monsters makes me think of the lemonade that we can be squeezing from these lemons. And that is that for those that are fortunate enough, and believe me, I believe you're fortunate if you can still have a job and be working from home and getting some income, is that they're having some pretty good sales on things. So I, I know Criterion has already had a, a flash sale 
And most of them, the ones I've seen are um, indefinite. You know, they haven't really put an end date on it. So, you know, maybe we can get uh, some bargains during this time. I mean, let's find good news where we can get it these days. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, we want to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, obviously a lot of people have lost their jobs and are losing their jobs. You know, the talk of unemployment rates getting up to 20%, which is, again, nothing that's been in my lifetime. You're talking many, many decades since we've had those high numbers. So kind of scary. Uh, I think it's been decades. I'm not in tune with all of that. So if I'm misspeaking, I apologize. But certainly not in recent memory have we dealt with this. So obviously, you know, there are bigger issues at hand. But, you know, these are things that you and I are just thinking about and talking about. So please take that what we're saying is not we're trying to make light of the situation. You know, this is a life and death situation for, for so many people, for all of us, really. When you're at home, if you're, you know, all monster kids, right? We have stacks of books and movies to watch. You do need to keep yourself, you know, entertained and busy if you're not getting out of the house. So, you know, that's that's why we kind of talk about these things. And as of right now, certain things are still available, could change. So uh, I guess in a month from now, you know, maybe we'll have some good news and we won't have to, you know, talk about things like that. But I guess maybe farther down the road, I know that uh, we don't go too far, but I, I'm excited about something we just covered on the show a few months ago, Doctor Who and the Daleks and Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD are coming out on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber in July. Uh, and they are including the Dalek Mania documentary that was its own separate disc when those things came out on DVD. So I'm excited about those coming out this summer and, and hope that as of right now, those are the release date. I think maybe some of those ones are on the edge like that. Wouldn't be surprised if they get maybe pushed out a little bit, uh, much like movie releases or everything's in a state of flux. And the one last thing I want to say is too, besides sales, and this was really where I meant to go when you talked about scary monsters, people are really experimenting with some innovative things. So Scary Monsters, for example, if you were a subscriber, you could actually get a free digital issue of the magazine. So even though you couldn't hold it in your hands yet, um, they were providing a digital copy. For heaven's sakes, Patrick Stewart is reading a sonnet every day on uh, Facebook or something. I mean, and you would expect that. I mean, creative people, they're going to come up with creative ways, you know, to survive let's be honest in this situation and thank goodness. And it's, it's terrible. The things that, you know, are, are going to be taken away from us or are being taken away, but I'm excited about the opportunities, you know, what's going to come from this, what new things are people going to discover? And uh, I've just been, that's the kind of thing I've kind of been focusing on, you know, the, the good news, the, the things you hear that people are doing and I know it's horrible for a lot of people, but this could also provide opportunities for a lot of people, certainly to exercise their creative ingenuity. And we will persevere. I mean, we're going to come out on the other side of this and you know, maybe we'll even get some nice things out of it that will come out with us. I think there's obviously going to be uh, you know, things that we're going to lose, things are going to change. And I think that uh, I agree with you. I think that this is... Uh, you know, for all the negativity that, that mankind is, is sometimes responsible for, one thing that the human race can do is is persevere through difficult times. I think of the horrors of World War II 
produced or forced production of so many amazing discoveries and things that came out of World War II. Scientists who were one time creating weapons of mass destruction channeled that energy after World War II into new things. And so uh, it'll be interesting. I think the world is going to change. And I am curious as to see what's going to happen on the other end. I know that a digital, you know, technology and streaming is getting, that's a lot of people saving grace right now for those who don't have a library like you or I do. You know, we have movies that are bypassing theaters and, and going straight into your home. Pricey, I think a little bit, $20 is good if you're a family of four to rent. Not so good if you're a family of one you know, because obviously that's more than what a movie ticket would cost just to rent something. But it is great that we have that technology available. And I think we're going to see things like that. There's going to be some innovations. The longer this goes on, I think you're going to see a lot of changes and things and, and that are going to ultimately alter the way we, we enjoy, you know, our various forms of entertainment. That is something that from tragedy can oftentimes come great things. And I think it'll be interesting to see as we work our way through what is proving to be one of the most unique years in, in my lifetime. We're only three months into it and it seems like it should be fall already. It's been an exhausting journey so far. We hope everyone's getting by. So what are you doing to fill the time, Richard, creatively? What's, what's going on? Where can we seek out more of your insight and knowledge. You know, I want to go back a couple months because right after we uh, recorded our March episode, so like the first week of February, I, I had kind of this epiphany of a cool thing to do on kccinephile.com, and that is OTR Wednesdays, old-time radio Wednesdays. I've started uh, highlighting an episode of an old-time radio program that is movie-related. Uh, Lux Radio Theater is a show that ran for from the 30s to the 50s, uh, even made its way to television for a period of time. But this was a weekly radio program that adapted motion pictures and oftentimes brought back original cast members. There's a lot of other you know programs that were like Lux Radio, uh, Screen Guild Playhouse, and, and oftentimes adaptations even wound up on on other shows for example like you know sometimes movies were adapted off of radio plays like donovan's brain for example which was adapted from a book we talked about that you know on a previous episode so i've been doing this otr wednesdays and in the month of march i tied it into lionel atwill i uh, in addition to bringing back some some old reviews that i did on on bella lugosi lionel atwill films I also watched a few new ones like The Sphinx, been adding those to the blog in the last month. And on Wednesdays, I've been covering three Lionel Atwill radio appearances that I'd never been aware of before. I wasn't even sure that he did anything. I did a search and was surprised to find that he had actually been on the radio three times. So that's been something fun. I've been getting some really good response from OTR Wednesdays. There's a lot of old-time radio uh, lovers out there uh, in our community. So I'm going to keep doing those for this foreseeable future. Today, for example, April 1st, I uh, I did Pride of the Yankees. You know, we're supposed to be having 
opening day of baseball was supposed to have been think been last week. Obviously didn't happen, but baseball and spring kind of go hand in hand. So I did Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper. And uh, yeah, I'll be doing that going forward. March, or excuse me, May, I'm going to be doing some Vincent Price movies for the blog. And so I'm going to be doing some Vincent Price film adaptations on radio in, in the month of May that Again, I think uh, I looked at this list and I'm like, I'm a bit surprised. It's not stuff that typically gets talked about. Everyone, when they talk Vincent Price and old time radio, they talk about, you know, uh, the saint or his appearances on escape or suspense. So that'll be, that's, that's something that, that I've been doing. Those are all on caseycinephile.com. And if they are related in some way to a horror movie or mystery or a thriller, then I'm also putting it on monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Been watching some Sherlock Holmes movies and some conversation about that maybe popping up on the blog in future months. We're making our way through the Basil Rathbone films right now. Going to introduce Carla to some of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes radio programs from the 40s. We're going to use that Wayback Machine and go back to 1900 for the very earliest Sherlock Holmes movie and uh, go see a bunch of silent films. We're going to kind of work our way through a very large filmography. Carla loves mysteries and I have been dying to do the Sherlock Holmes films for a while. So I suspect some of those will pop up on reviews on the blog and uh, Laurel and Hardy as well. We're diving into Laurel and Hardy. Uh, It'll be May before we start doing Laurel and Hardy movies. We have some films to watch uh, ahead of time, but starting in May, Going all the way through September, uh, we'll be doing at least one Laurel and Hardy movie a week, like we did with Marx Brothers films last year. So I'm doing the pre-work on that right now. So um, yeah, that's what's that's what's going on uh, in our neck of the woods. What about you? Well, speaking of diversifying, which I, you sort of are a little bit with Old Time Radio and uh, Pride of the Yankees, I diversified and talked about one of my favorite movies on the Diecast Movie Review Podcast that uh, our friend Steve Turek does, and we chatted about the pirate movie. Well, I said it was diversifying, but if you've seen it, you might consider it a horror movie. I, I'm not sure, but I, I just dearly love it, and it was fun to talk to Steve about that. Other than that, I've just been keeping up. Monday's usually getting a new review on ClassicHorrors.club. Wednesdays over at DC Comics Guy, I'm still working through the Wonder Woman Without Powers run uh, from the late 60s, early 70s. And then on Fridays, as I mentioned earlier, finishing up Kolchak, I think I only have three episodes to go. Uh, I'm really struggling with what to do next. I want to do another series and I want to go episode by episode, but I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. I need to look at that. I did want to say uh, sort of a tie-in that I'm doing, and I've mentioned John Kitley before, a a friend of mine that does Kitley's Crypt blog and also has his Horror Hound column, It Came From the Crypt. Uh, He's brought back the Cryptic Army. This is something he used to do, and he's just brought it back this year. Every month he sort of issues a challenge, uh, and it all revolves around movies you've never seen. And he challenges you each month to pick two movies with a certain theme that you've never seen. Well, February, or March, I guess, was what are you truly afraid of? Face your fears and and watch two movies that you've never seen that deal with the subject matter that you're scared of most. Well, for me, I have to say it's 
bats. Uh, I only got to one movie, but I watched one called Chosen Survivors. Sort of timely. It's a, an end of the world type movie. Uh, 11 people are in a bunker underground. Great. You know, it's the end of the world. They can see what's happening above. But they're also trapped in there with hundreds of bats. And I found that to be quite terrifying. So part of the cryptic army, you kind of report back what you saw. And then I take advantage of that a little bit and give my thoughts, but then say, Hey, if you want to read more, you know, go over to classic horrors.club. That's what I'm up to. I want to add that I, of course, I'm still doing the monthly Memoverse audio cast. I I did do something for April that should be live by the time you hear this. Of course, sadly, the April premiere of uh, the Phantom My Kids and the Monster Walks Among Us isn't going to happen. looks like it's going to be pushed to the fall. But I had Monster on the Brain, so if you are so inclined, tune in to the April edition of the Kansas City Crypt, and I talk about Monster on the Campus, the uh, late 1950s Universal, and I don't want to say the word classic, you know, it was it was towards the end of their great run, and some of those late 1950s films are, are a little rougher than others, so talk about that uh, over there, and I've also, haven't done anything over at Dread Media for a while, but... I just talked with Des uh, over there the other day, and sometime, maybe in April, uh, I just need to sit down and, and record it, uh, a review on Wolf Cop, which is not a classic horror film. Have you seen Wolf Cop? I never have. <laughs> it's it's unique. You know, I know we're, we're generally a G-rated show, but let me just say, I don't think I've ever seen a werewolf movie where the transformation sequence involves a lower male appendage close-up shot being uh, transformed. And I probably could have survived without seeing that. (laughs) It was in an episode of uh, Joe Bob's Drive-In that I actually, the one episode from last season that we missed, and I I hadn't seen that one yet. So uh, I'll be doing a review on Wolf Cop. I know that Nick Brown is a big fan of that. I think they cover that over at the B-Movie cast. Anyway, I, I will segue and say... Uh, if you are a fan of Joe Bob's Drive-In, the new season is starting, which kind of surprised me. Uh, I guess they have him in the can already, so we can expect the new season starting April the 24th on Shutter. That goes for two months, so it'll, it'll go on into late June, so the early part of summer. Joe Bob's Drive-In is open for business, which is good news. Some new stuff coming. I love Joe Bob. His movies are always interesting pushes Carla to the limits, and sometimes that amuses me in an evil kind of way. So we'll see what happens over Joe Bob. Well, great. I always enjoy hearing what you are working on. And you know what else I would enjoy? I'd like to hear what other people are are either working on or what are you doing during your stay-at-home quarantine. You know, send us a a note, comment on the Facebook group page, give us a call, 649-2582. That's 616-649-2582. And just let us know. And uh, in our next episode, maybe uh, when we rerun the rerun, when we repost and remaster the <laughs> Sam Irvin interview, maybe we can throw in just a few comments on on what people are doing during their quarantines. I'd I'd be interested. Who who's got something really fun and clever? I've heard about digital or virtual happy hours and brunches and things like that. So again, we we can be creative. Yeah, I mean, Derek's been doing some great stuff. He's been doing virtual uh, movies on the weekends now for the last couple of weekends, at least, uh, or three weekends, I think. 
Uh, and he's doing, going to continue doing that, his virtual movie sessions that he does over at Twitch. He, he promotes that each and every week. I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag on this. this I, you know, depending on how soon things happen, but I can tell you that you've heard me talk about the beast from the beginning of time. That might be coming soon to a Monster Kid Radio virtual movie marathon. Uh, I'll just leave that little hint at that. So that that movie may get to uh, be a part of uh, of a uh, of a virtual movie marathon sooner than later. Well, I definitely would participate in that one. I sadly have not done it yet. I don't really know why. So I would definitely tune in for that. Might you be participating in some manner? Is that what you're hinting at? Well, I don't know that I would be participating necessarily directly, although, of course, there is conversation. If you're, you know, you can watch Twitch through, like, Roku, through a roundabout way, but if you're on a computer, there, of course, there is a conversation happening while the movies are going on, and, and I would make a point of attending because I'm sure people are going to wonder what the heck the beast from the beginning of time is. And uh, yeah, there may be some supplemental stuff to go along with that. Things are, 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 are happening. Yeah, well, be sure and post in the, the Facebook group so everyone will know when that is. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, anyone I can introduce, I, all of this comes about from last weekend. I, I introduced Carla to that movie, and that movie is near and dear to my heart because it, it, it's a reason why I'm sitting here talking to you, really, in an indirect kind of way. So uh, that movie is not a classic. But uh, it is, uh, it's a lot of fun and, and deserves a little more love than it gets. So maybe we'll introduce the movie to uh, some new viewers out there in the next month. That'd be great. Well, I think let's wrap it up. We are going to close with a song that uh, ties in with world events with hopefully going out on a positive note. And that is a song from the, the great band, The Police, their 1980 albums in Yada Mandata available on Apple Music. It's a song called When the World is Running Down, You Make the Best of What's Still Around. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. Let's do that, everyone. Hang in there. Uh, We'll be back soon and, and look forward to talking and interacting with all of you. Take care, everyone. Bye.